All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center's Landmark Cases, our 12-part series that looks at some of the Supreme Court's most interesting and impactful historic decisions over the course of our country's history. Tonight, we are going to be talking about a case you might not know very much about, but hopefully by the end you'll understand why it is on our list. It's called the Slaughterhouse Cases. It was the first time that the Supreme Court reviewed the newly enacted 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Let me introduce you to our two terrific guests tonight who are here to tell you more about the history and importance of these cases. Paul Clement, a constitutional law attorney who served as Solicitor General of, uh, during the Bush 43 administration, and he has argued more than 75 cases before the Supreme Court. Paul, welcome. Nice Thanks. to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. Michael Ross is a legal historian, and he is the author of a biography of a justice you'll be hearing about tonight, Samuel Freeman Miller. It's called Justice of Shattered Dreams. His home base is at the University of Maryland. Thanks for coming. Great to be here. Well, I'm going to just have you make the case to the audience. Why is this on our list? Why do the slaughterhouse cases matter, Paul Clement? Well, this case definitely belongs on any list of great landmark Supreme Court cases. And the reason is that it is, as you suggested, the first opportunity the Supreme Court has to interpret the 14th Amendment. And the reason that's so important is that the 14th Amendment is what essentially takes the guarantees of the Bill of Rights eventually uh, and constrains the actions of state governments. And if you think about the Bill of Rights, first 10 amendments to the Constitution, all of them by their terms were really designed to restrict the federal government and what it, what it did to the people and the citizens of the United States. And it's really only at the point that we go through a civil war where people finally realize that it's not just the federal government they have to be concerned about, but the state governments that they have to be concerned about, that there is a process of adding the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. They restrict the states. They're tremendously important. And the Slaughterhouse case is the very first time the Supreme Court interprets the 14th Amendment. Mike Ross, in your book, you said that this decision influenced the course of race relations for a century and it continues to shape constitutional law today. Make the case. Uh, well, in the slaughterhouse cases, uh, the key uh, clause for the debate amongst historians and law professors and uh, legal scholars ever since is the privileges or immunities clause. And that question as to what that meant and whether or not uh, it actually applied the Bill of Rights to the states. In the slaughterhouse cases, the Supreme Court goes down the road of saying the Privileges or Immunities Clause doesn't do that. And it becomes a long, entangled story how your Bill of Rights 
rights individually eventually get incorporated against your state government. This is also an extraordinarily important case because the uh, Civil War doesn't end in a peace treaty. There's no signing on a deck of a battleship like at the end of World War II. And it takes a long time before Congress decides what their terms are going to be to the defeated South for them to regain their place in the Union. And many people see the 14th Amendment as that peace treaty. Agree to these terms and we will allow you to have a restored place in the Union. The slaughterhouse cases really are about slaughterhouse and butchers. And we're going to learn more about how this case began and how it made its way to the Supreme Court. But first, we're going to back up and learn a little bit more about the 14th Amendment itself. Now, if you watched last week, we did the Dred Scott decision. And we learned at the end of that program that the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments were really a remedy for the decision, the, the really terrible decision made of the Dred Scott case. Uh, but let's listen to Senator Patrick Leahy of uh, Vermont, who is the senior Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, talking about the 14th Amendment and uh, why that was such an important thing for the United States of America. Let's listen. It's interesting. The 14th Amendment is 150 years now since uh, that, so the second founding, part of the second founding. Why do you call it that? Well, because I think that uh, we had the founding uh, fathers in the original um, Congress, but then when those series of amendments came through, it's like the United States became more aware of what they are and more aware of the fact of slavery ending and so on, that we had to treat all, uh, all people the same. Now, you know and I know, having said it at that time, it took a long, long time, and some places in this country it is still going on. But it was for the second founding. It was the uh, second coming of the uh, of the United States. Senator Leahy talking about why these three amendments are the real second founding of our country. Well, let's look at the text of Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment, just so you understand the legal framework for our discussion tonight. It says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law nor deny any person to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And you heard our two guests talk about the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which is really the heart of the legal challenge in this case. But I'm going to ask you, Mike, please, to set the stage for the passage of the 14th Amendment. Obviously, after Dred Scott, the country fights the Civil War. This amendment was passed in 1868, just after the war ended. So tell us how it came to be. Well, uh, again, when the Civil War ends, there's no peace treaty. And uh, there's a long debate about what Abraham Lincoln would have done with Reconstruction had he lived. But unfortunately, he doesn't. And the man that's put in charge is Andrew Johnson. And Andrew Johnson allows legislatures to be elected uh, throughout the South immediately after the Civil War without giving African-American men the right to vote that fill up with ex-Confederates. And they immediately begin passing a series of laws known as the Black Codes. And the black codes were laws that applied only to black people and said things like black people can't meet in uh, groups of six after sundown. But it also had uh, even more onerous laws attached to it, like uh, uh, that each January, um, 
in, in, African Americans had to produce a document showing where they were going to work for the coming year. And if they couldn't produce that document as to what plantation they were going to work on, they'd be fined for vagrancy and sentenced to work on a plantation to pay off the fine for, a com for the coming year. And the core of the Black Codes was to s restore slavery in form, if not in law. And the Black Codes shocked a lot of people in the North because it seemed like after over 700,000, with over 700,000 American dead, that the war meant more than that. And when Congress finally came back into session uh, the following December, a long struggle goes on with President Johnson as to what his vision of Reconstruction would be and what Congress's would be. And eventually, out of the Joint Committee of Reconstruction comes the 14th Amendment, which will be Congress's terms to the South. And included in the language you just read are lots of phrases like the Equal Protection Clause that are aimed directly at the black coats. If you're going to have a law that says people can't meet in groups after six after sundown, great, but it has to apply to everyone. You can't have laws that apply specifically to one race. Paul Clement, what can you tell our audience about the view of the Reconstruction and these amendments on Southerners, the vanquished Southerners, uh, the, who felt as though they were in an occupied land at this point? Well, sure. I mean, I, you certainly have in the wake of the Civil War this situation where you have some newly uh, freed slaves, the freedmen. Um, you have some people coming down from the north to take advantage of uh, kind of the reopening of the south. But then you also have a number of people who are in the south. They participated in in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. And, you know, the last thing they want to see is federal authority being imposed on them from Washington, in part because federal authority is designed to protect the newly freed slaves, and in part because they've just fought a war where they were trying to vindicate states' rights. And although they lost the war, I don't think their hearts and minds were changed in the process. And so part of what becomes, becomes some, so controversial in the South about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment is it really is this idea of asserting the federal government's will on all sorts of issues that had traditionally been left to the state governments and to the states. So, Mike Ross, our story takes place in uh, the reconstructed South of specifically Louisiana and the city of New Orleans. What was New Orleans typical of the South, or were there special conditions down there? Yes, New Orleans is a very complex place, but it's the place uh, that everyone is looking to see whether Reconstruction can succeed, because it has the Afro-Creole community, which is this class of uh, uh, very well-educated former free persons of color who came out of the French and Spanish uh, um, uh, culture. And uh, they are, they are uh, people who can put the lie to Confederates' uh, claims that African Americans are too uneducated and too ignorant to serve in, in office. And in New Orleans, there's all kinds of tumult during this period with various militias uh, in, in every direction and all kinds of uh, white people who are extraordinarily angry that by 1869, 1870, you have African-Americans serving on juries, African-Americans on the police force, African-American detectives solving high-profile crimes. They're on the verge of integrating the New Orleans public schools. And there are a lot of people that even with the presence of Afro-Creoles, uh, there are a lot of white people who are 
extraordinarily unhappy. Now, we're going to get into our setting the stage for the actual case. And uh, the past couple of weeks, there are some very big characters. There are two important characters in this particular story tonight, but there are also institutions and groups of people who are part of this this scenario. One of those is the Butcher's Benevolent Association and various other groups that represent the butcher's interests. Can you tell us a little bit about who they were in New Orleans at that time? Well, at the time, you know, just to sort of set the stage a little bit, you do have a dynamic where the 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 the, the slaughterhouses at this point are in uh, New Orleans proper, and there are a number of uh, you know butchers who are there. A number of them are from Gascony, and they have sort of this tradition of uh, of, of being involved in this trade. It's part of their identity, um, and. Again, what I think sort of sets the stage for this is the idea that you have these slaughterhouses that are, you know, very near the large population centers in New Orleans. And I think, you know, anybody who's read, you know, The Jungle knows that slaughterhouses, even 50, 60 years later, were no picnic. But at the time that we're talking about here, late 1860s, early 1870s, I mean, these are an incredible source of pestilence and are really part of the reason that uh, New Orleans has a reputation, not only being as a place that perhaps Reconstruction can really succeed, but also as a reputation where you don't want to be there in the summer because you might not, you might, you know, might, you might li- leave in a, you know, in a pine box. I mean, the it's, necropolis yeah. of America, some people called it. The exactly. necropolis oh, yes. of America. Well, when they get to court, when they file suit, they hire, and I would like to just have a brief a biography of him because we'll spend more time when we get to the legal part of this, but they hire as their attorney this uh, person by the name of John Campbell. Who is John Campbell, very briefly? John Campbell, um, I often call the evil genius of the 14th Amendment. Uh, John Campbell is a former United States Supreme Court justice who was in the majority in the Dred Scott decision. But he's from Alabama, and when the Civil War breaks out, he resigns to join the Confederacy, where he becomes uh, Jefferson Davis's assistant secretary of war. Uh, in that role, um, he says a number of things that do not hold up well in the 21st century, and he's apoplectic at the very end of the war when Robert E. Lee and others in those desperate last moments of the Confederacy are proposing that the Confederacy employ black troops. Campbell is completely against it. It violates everything on which the Confederacy is based. He is arrested after the Lincoln assassination because they think that he has a part in it, and he's held in jail for a number of months, and he comes out uh, very embittered and will make his uh, legal career in New Orleans after uh, Radical Reconstruction begins fighting the Reconstruction government. Virtually everything he's doing, every case he's litigating is is being done to thwart uh, the Reconstruction, the biracial Reconstruction government of Louisiana. And he says things uh, like, we have Africans in a place all around us, and every day they are bartering, bartering away their duties and uh, uh, positions. And he says anything, even violent insurrection, is better than the insanity that seems to prevail. We will also be hearing about Justice Miller. Uh, you wrote the book about him. You said in the book that historians have long con- uh, con- considered excuse me, Miller one of the court's most important justices. Can you briefly tell us why? One of them is because of the slaughterhouse cases. The slaughterhouse cases has such a tremendous impact on the uh, 14th Amendment that anyone who issued that opinion is going to get credit as an important justice. But he's also a force. 
uh, Miller is this kind of big, burly, John Goodman-like figure who's the first justice from the trans-Mississippi West who prides himself on cutting through the BS when lawyers go on and on in these Ciceronian orations, Miller says, you know, damn it, get to the point. And in one case, the guy said, what point? He says, any point, some point. And he, uh, everyone who dealt with him on the court uh, throughout the Gilded Age, uh, it, it was just a force of nature when he entered the, the room. So, Paul Clement, because you've been in front of these justices, I just would like to have you... Think about this dynamic, because here we have, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, later on in our story, we have a former Supreme Court justice who resigns to fight for the Confederacy, to represent the Confederacy, arguing before his former colleagues. And here's another dynamic. Justice Miller, who will write the opinion, loathes John Campbell. Right. I mean, you know, this is something that, you know, we haven't seen in the modern era, but somebody to leave the court and then appear in front of the court. I mean, obviously the justices are going to decide these cases and they're going to decide them based on their view of the laws, but you can't help but imagine that the personalities have something to do with it. And I think that when you have somebody arguing the case that one of the justices has an intense, not just personal dislike, but political dislike, I think the view of leaving the court to join the Confederacy is something that I think Justice Miller can't really forgive. So to be hearing this argument uh, from that particular advocate has to change the dynamic as the way that that justice and some of the other justices are processing the case that they're hearing and the arguments that they're hearing. Okay, so time to learn more about uh, what got this case into litigation. <clears throat> and so we're going to visit New Orleans in a piece of video. And so you think about New Orleans in that time period, all the cattle being raised in the Midwest and being brought down through the Mississippi for slaughter in New Orleans. Lots of independent butchers who are working there without regulation. And you're going to learn more about the conditions that people were protesting in New Orleans that led to the creation of this communal property, the slaughterhouse uh, landing company that the butchers were protesting. Let's watch. You know, with all the, the, the refuse, all the human waste, all the animal waste, all the dung, the livers, the hearts, with all of that being dumped in the river, it's no wonder that this city was famous as a necropolis, a city of the dead. By 1860, there would have been at least 84 slaughterhouses, butchers, shops, and abattoirs in this general area. Uh, the whole place was just one royal stench. And it was where most of the meat industry that supplied the booming city of New Orleans had been centralized and concentrated. Over in this direction is where the town's main, main uh, livestock landing was. And that's where all the livestock were offloaded that were coming from Texas or from the prairies of Louisiana, central Louisiana and an estimated 300,000 heads of cattle and pork were dropped off or delivered at, those, at landing at that wharf every year. And there would be a separate group of bull drivers, they were called, and they would stampede them through town, past schools and hospitals, to all these butcher shops. And then in this direction, one block away, was what was called the nuisance wharf. And that's where all the offal, the entrails, the dung, the livers, the heart were taken and then dumped into the middle of the river. Now the problem was 
less than two miles downriver, and the, the currents carries everything downriver, of course, were the intake pipes for the, the town's major waterworks system. And not surprising, a lot of those, uh, those entrails, a lot of that, that, that filth, endless filth, had collected around those pipes. And of course, the people who live near here, or in the Garden District for that matter, which is not that far away, uh, were pretty much up in arms. And they've been trying, they were trying for many, many years prior to the enactment of the Slaughterhouse case to have these, these uh, meat industry centralized in one location. Uh, preferably downriver, either on the west bank or the east bank, and that was the uh, basically the impetus for the enactment of the slaughterhouse case. So before we hear more about it, I'd like to tell you about how you get involved, and we hope you will tonight. You can call us and uh, with your comments or questions about this case. We'll have our lines divided uh, geographically, and we'll go to calls in about 10 minutes. 202-748-8900 if you live in the eastern half of the United States. 202-748-8901 if you live in the western half of the United States. Or you can send us a tweet. That's an easy way to get into the conversation. Use the hashtag Landmark Cases as you're tweeting. And I've got a Twitter feed here. I can follow your comments or questions as they come in. And finally, there's a conversation already started on our Facebook page, and you can be part of that as well. And some of those questions will make it into our discussion. So we just heard about the deplorable conditions. How did it come to be that the citizens sought redress from their legislature for the problem? Uh, and let me just add one quick thing. When you pumped water in the New Orleans water supply and you got the glass, there'd be all kinds of stuff floating in it, pieces of entrail, et oh, cetera. Lovely. Yes, just mm -hmm. wanted to... So they really wanted redress from this. Yes, and they'd had wanted redress since the Spanish colonial period. There'd been repeated efforts to move the butchers either across the river to Algiers Point or down below the city. And it had happened again and again, but the butchers are kind of a... Uh, a large group that managed to kind of weasel their way back into the city every time. And uh, the Gascon butchers are very tight-knit. They, they uh, protect their monopoly. They keep other people out of the butchering business, and they fight back. And the regulations always fail. And for that reason, the butchers for most of New Orleans history are, are not a very well-liked group. Uh, people want the meat, but they see the butchers as people who often are putting their health in jeopardy. And what happens is, is the legislature during Reconstruction decides that their strategy to lure people to the Republican Party so that the Republican Party could survive after the removal of federal troops is that they would get done a number of things that New Orleanians had always wanted done, including uh, moving the slaughterhouse out of the city and fixing the levees and doing all of these things and that in the process they might lure particularly moderately-minded businessmen to the Republican Party who were willing to put racial animosity aside for economic progress. And uh, they really think, a lot of people, the Slaughterhouse Act is going to be something the community will rally around and say, hey, you know what, I, I, you know, I didn't like this legislature, but they're actually getting good things done. Of course, that's not the way it's going to turn out. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. So we're going to next take you to uh, the legislature where this piece of legislation was brought. And it's really an interesting one because it is the legislature in the Reconstruction uh, uh, South, and particularly uh, Louisiana. And there are, of course, racial politics attached to it. Let's watch. 
We're in an area of the Louisiana State Museum that explores radical reconstruction in Louisiana. We're looking here at a ballot box from about 1875. And the box is important not only because it's a unique object, but also because of what it represents, voting rights in, in Louisiana and Reconstruction. After the Civil War, a new group of people was able to vote for the first time, mainly African Americans, who changed the composition of the state legislature. What you're looking at here is a poster that shows some of the African Americans who were elected into the state legislature during Radical Reconstruction. The Louisiana State Legislature that passed the Slaughterhouse Act consisted of about one-third newly elected African Americans. One of the most interesting figures in this picture is Oscar Dunn. Oscar Dunn was the first man of African descent who was elected lieutenant governor of a state. And he served as lieutenant governor for several years and then was eventually replaced by PBS Pinchback, who also served as lieutenant governor, um, but went on to serve for 35 days as the governor of Louisiana, the first African-American to serve as governor of a state. He served from late December of 1872 until January 1873. About three months later, of course, the Supreme Court handed down the slaughterhouse verdict. In addition to the fact that the racial composition of the Louisiana State Legislature changed during Reconstruction, Reconstruction was also a period when thousands of Northerners moved to the South looking for business opportunities. In fact, many of the businessmen who wanted to establish the slaughterhouse were, in fact, from the North. What you're looking at here is a carpet bag, and the carpet bag is typical of the kind of luggage that Northerners would have brought with them when they moved to the South. The term carpetbagger, um, which referred to carpet bags like this, was used by many Southerners in a pejorative way um, because they saw Northerners coming to the South and exploiting the natural resources and taking advantage of the economic devastation brought on by the Civil War. So there you have it, the Louisiana legislature with uh, African-American members passes the slaughterhouse law, which will require the creation of the slaughterhouse company and the butchers would be required to move and do their work there. That becomes the heart of our case. Gentlemen, I'm going to take a caller who's uh, waiting for us named Roberto here in Washington, D.C. Hi, Roberto. You're on the air. Hi, good evening. Yes, once again, I want to commend C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center for this wonderful series. I really find it very educational. I have a very simple question uh, to your panel there, and that is, um, historically, as you know, in the 1800s, white women were considered citizens of the United States, but they were not allowed to vote. So my question is, is the right to vote a privilege of national citizenship? Thank you. Thanks very much. Paul Clement? Well, I think that, I mean, that gets us a little bit ahead in our story, but it, it, it's, you know, the 15th Amendment is passed specifically to deal with the issue of voting. And so voting rights are not conferred by the 14th Amendment, and they're not conferred uh, to certainly to, to women just because they're citizens of the United States under the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Uh, and the, the, the right to vote is enshrined in the 15th Amendment, and of course it doesn't extend to women by its terms, and we have to wait until the 19th Amendment to the Constitution before that's protected. But there is an interesting uh, aspect of the rights of women that's affected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause because one of the cases that follows immediately after the slaughterhouse cases in the Supreme Court of the United States involves an effort by a woman lawyer in the state of Illinois to get admitted to the state bar of Illinois. And her argument was that the ability to be an attorney and practice before the bar was a privilege or immunity of citizenship. And the Supreme Court applying some of the same reasoning that it would adopt in the slaughterhouse cases, rejected that argument. 
and said that a female attorney did not have the privilege to practice law in this country. Kay is our next caller, and she is in the state of Louisiana. Metairie, you're on, Kay. I would like to ask uh, Mike Rojas why so many of these 14th Amendment cases originated in Louisiana. Puffy versus Ferguson and their Kirkshank case in addition to Slaughterhouse. And, and my answer would be uh, that, again, uh, New Orleans and Louisiana are central to the Reconstruction story. And you not only have the Afro-Creoles, which are going to make the chance of, uh, uh, of Reconstruction working the the, uh, the, the best chances in New Orleans, but you have 10,000 former slaves that move into the city of New Orleans, and then you have all of these ex-Confederates, because most of the South is destroyed, and they all move to New Orleans too, John Bell Hood and Simon Bolivar Buckner and, and James Longstreet, and they all end up in New Orleans, and you have this incredibly tumultuous place where you have these this very proud class of African Americans who are going to be in court all the time litigating their new rights, uh, and that's going to lead to the Plessy decision. And you have uh, other people just as uh, uh, forcefully trying to deny them. And Louisiana is going to have the Knights of the White Camellia, a paramilitary arm of the Democratic Party, and the Crescent City White League. And in amidst all of this tumult over uh, uh, what's going to happen with Reconstruction, the th three of the, of the greatest of the 19th century 14th Amendment cases emerge. Next caller is Barry in Dothan, Alabama. You're on. Uh, this question is uh, for Mr. Clement, uh, outstanding Supreme Court lawyer. You said earlier that Justice Campbell uh, argued uh, in the slaughterhouse cases, and I may have misunderstood you about uh, how many justices did that. My recollection is, is that Abe Fortas argued a case before the Supreme Court after he stepped down from the court. He represented Puerto Rico in a case before the Supreme Court, and he may have died right before the decision was handed down. Am I correct or wrong? You know, I think you may well be correct, and I think Justice Fortas is really kind of the last example of somebody stepping down from the court and then not serving as a sort of senior justice, which a number of the, the justices, for example, you know, Justice O'Connor, Justice Souter, uh, they no longer serve on the Supreme Court, but they still are Article III jurists, and they still actually sit from time to time on the courts of appeals. And so it's been a while since we've had a, a justice who, you know, not only steps down, but actually sort of retires from Article Three entirely and is even in a position uh, to argue the cases. But I think your Justice Fortas would be the most recent example of that happening. If you're new to the C-SPAN call-in experience, and we know a number of you are watching for the first time tonight, uh, here's how you do it. You call in, and we don't answer your call until just about time to put you on the air. So keep ringing, and we'll get to your calls in queue as the program continues. And we've got another hour ahead of us with lots more to tell you in the story of the slaughterhouse cases. This interesting period of time, post-Civil War era, the Reconstruction age in the United States and what life was like in the South, which is where our case centers. In fact, next we're going to return by video to the city of New Orleans because the legal case centers, as we learned, on the creation of the Crescent City Livestock Landing and Slaughterhouse Company. We're going to learn more about that. This is a general area in St. Bernard Parish uh, where the Crescent City Livestock Landing and Slaughterhouse operations were located. 
It would go from the levee, we're standing on the levee and the river is behind me, and it would go back, it looks like at least a quarter of a mile, two long, very long city blocks. And there was on this side, on the other side of the, of the man-made levee that we're standing on, and this side of the, of the levee is called the Batchur. And you can still see it down here, probably some remains of, of the uh, cattle landing. There was a big cattle landing here where, where cattle and, and hogs that were brought down river were unloaded and then were herded into the, to the slaughterhouse. And there were also a rail line too that would bring cattle in or bring uh, the processed and uh, packaged meat out, packed meat out. And this is the area where all of the butchers in the city of New Orleans would have had to operate. They would rent stalls, uh, lease stalls. A lot of them were Gascons. These were French butchers from Gascony or had ethnic roots in uh, the Gascony area of France. And they were, you know, they didn't want to didn't want to be pushed out. They didn't want to be uh, uh, taken over and centralized. Even though the understanding was in the law is that they would have to be offered a, a stall, a butcher's stall at market rates. You couldn't uh, play favorites. But they decided to carry that case forward and of course the rest is constitutional history. Michael Ross, when they took the case to the Louisiana courts, what was the heart of their case? Uh, well, the, the heart of their case initially is... is uh, working even under the Louisiana state constitution to claim that they're being wrong, being denied equal protection. But where the case really gets interesting is when John Campbell and the other lawyers who are teamed up with Campbell get involved because they see an opportunity in the 14th Amendment, an amendment that the ex-Confederate press of New Orleans and ex-Confederates had, had held their nose about and said this is, this, this is a, uh, an amendment that's going to force federal power upon us. And suddenly they saw an opportunity in the broad language of that amendment, which didn't say anything about the race of who it would apply to, to uh, use an amendment that most people initially hated on the side of the butchers, arguing that the, they were being denied equal protection, that they were being denied their property without due process, and that they were being denied the privilege or immunity to practice their vocation free from government intrusion uh, uh, by the Louisiana legislature. Campbell even went as far to argue that it violated the 13th Amendment, that requiring butchers to slaughter in someone else's slaughterhouse was uh, constituted slavery, was involuntary servitude. And you can see Campbell kind of laughing his evil laugh as he used this amendment uh, that most people had seen, as most uh, ex-Confederates had seen, this foisted upon them now to fight the hated biracial legislature. And even though a lot of people weren't fond of the butchers, now that this was all being packaged as a way to thwart Governor Warmoth and his biracial legislature, the butchers become local celebrities. And all the papers are cheering along as the slaughterhouse litigation goes forward and are following day to day like they followed the baseball scores in the columns of the paper. Okay, but here's the irony. The people of New Orleans were suffering, had cholera epidemics because of the work of these butchers, and yet they were willing to cast this aside and cheer them on in their legal challenge. 
Well, that is an irony, and uh, you know, the good professor made a reference to the people of New Orleans that could put race to the side, uh, but not everybody fit that description. And I do think that this was seen over time as less about the butchers and more about the fact that you had this passed by the biracial legislature, and there was an also a sense that the people that were going to benefit from this were... African Americans and also carpetbaggers who were coming down, and they were going to provide some of the financing for the new slaughterhouse across the river. So there was a real opportunity here to turn something that the people of New Orleans had been clamoring for uh, for decades and turn it into something that they could be whipped up into actually opposing. What what happened in the Louisiana courts? In, in the in the Louisiana courts, it's a very complex situation. At the lower level in New Orleans, you had seven district courts, four of which held civil cases. And there, there were two judges who had grown to be sympathetic to Campbell. They are people, uh, one of them, uh, Judge Collins, for example, had attempted early on to be kind of a conservative Republican, but he'd grown disaffected when African Americans demanded that the schools be integrated and that the Louisiana Constitution include equal access to public accommodations. And he turns and now sides with Campbell and the people who are fighting the biracial legislature. So at the lower level, you'll have two judges who are going to constantly issue injunctions on the side of Campbell, stopping the slaughterhouse uh, for people from having to go to the slaughterhouse, etc. But the Louisiana Supreme Court were all dyed in the wool uh, uh, proponents of Reconstruction, and they would reverse the injunction. And this goes on and on. And it's not just in the slaughterhouse litigation. It's in the ability of the legislature to tax. It's in the, the project where they want to build a canal from the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. It's in the levee repair. And it's a rule or ruin strategy where uh, Campbell and his allies are trying to discredit this government, claiming that everything is the result of corruption, and uh, slow the whole process down. And it works uh, very effectively. It ties things up for a number of years. They can't get anything done. Finally, uh, what the legislature does is says we can't take this anymore, and they create a new district court that says that this is the only district court that can issue injunctions. And they put a dyed-in-the-wool Republican Judge Dibble in that court. And from then on in, it shuts out the lower-level courts. And at that point, Campbell doesn't care anymore because he's moved his whole chain of argument now to the federal courts using the 14th Amendment, and now he can make the same claims uh, in, in federal court that he had done successfully in state court until he's thwarted by the creation of the new 8th District Court. Let's uh, take a call from Joe in Asante, Minnesota. You're on the air. Uh, yes, good, out, good evening. I would like to thank you all, first off, for doing this series. It's incredibly wonderful. My question is, how did the 14th Amendment actually get passed when there were 23... Um, senators um, excluded from the voting, 11 or tw- 22 from the other uh, 11 states and one from New Jersey, when they were not, they were back in the part of being uh, the union. Paul Clement, can you take that? Well, no, you'll defer, defer to Mike Ross. I, I, what uh, happens uh, is that they, the Congress makes it a uh, a requirement that the state legislatures have to ratify the 14th Amendment in order to uh, be readmitted to the union in their, in order to once again be allowed to have federal repre, uh, representatives in Congress. So there is the question, could, how, there's always the controversy 
that uh, the Congress that passed the amendments wasn't a fully staffed Congress. But I think that's solved by the fact that it is you, you needed a, a, a three-quarters uh, vote of the Congress, and it didn't specify that all the states had to be in place for that to happen. Can you tell us, Paul Clement, how, uh, why the Supreme Court decided to take this case on? How was it with, how did it have standing? It was decided by the Louisiana Supreme Court, so there wasn't a conflict between states. How did it get to the Supreme Court? Well, you still had the federal issue in the case, and that's how it gets to the Supreme Court of the United States. And that, in a sense, is, you know, part of Campbell's strategy here, which is frustrated in the Louisiana courts where he knows that he's really not going to get the relief that he wants. He understands that if he can provide a federal issue into the case, then he can get to the Supreme Court of the United States. And that's where the 13th and 14th Amendments come in uh, as, you know, really not just something that works in the sense of this tremendous chutzpah of taking these provisions that were clearly designed to foster Reconstruction and to protect African Americans and using them as a weapon, uh, you know, this, these amendments that are designed to be a shield for Africans and Americans in the Reconstructed South and using them as a sword to try to cut down their newly enacted legislation that's something where I think you know, he exercises both the chutzpah to do that and also has the insight, and he'd know it after all, being a former U.S. Supreme Court justice, that these federal cases, these federal claims are his ticket to Supreme Court review. Well, we're going to have to tell people about the Supreme Court that this case landed in. Who was the chief justice at the time? The chief justice is uh, Morrison Waite. Is that correct? No, Simon Chase. So, oh, yeah, right. It's Simon, Simon Chase. Chase. Sorry, I'm having a meltdown here on live, on live TV. <laughs> it's okay. We're here to help you. <laughs> yes. And the Chief Justice is Simon Chase, who uh, doesn't have long to live. And then it's a court that is uh, made up of uh, Lincoln and Grant appointees, largely. There's uh, uh, a couple of people left over, Nathan Clifford from the Buchanan administration. But this is a court made up of justices appointed by Lincoln and Grant. And you would think that a, a court made up of justices uh, uh, appointed by Lincoln and Grant would all be people sympathetic to Reconstruction. And it doesn't turn out to be that way. There's uh, Stephen J. Field and Joseph Bradley and others had soured on Reconstruction. It will be a very uh, divided court for that reason. I read, and this is a bit of a sidebar, but I read that when Lincoln made these appoint appointments to the Supreme Court, he had essentially one litmus test. And that was whether or not they were going to support the union, but didn't delve into their positions on other issues. Is that correct? It's absolutely correct. When Lincoln, is, he's in the midst of a civil war. He's done all kinds of controversial things from suspending habeas corpus to the blockade, uh, et cetera. And he wants judges that he is convinced will uphold his war powers. And that is the litmus test. And their issues on economic issues and everything else are secondary. And he appoints mostly Republicans, although some Republicans had been former Democrats, but he even appoints Stephen J. Field, who is a unionist Democrat, because all the things Field had been saying were, I'm going to be a staunch supporter of your war powers. And he, that, he, and he gets what he asks for. Uh, the court is, at least during the war, uh, going to uphold Lincoln's positions. And then after the war, as uh, in peacetime, some of them are going to turn and declare some of the things that were done like the Legal Tender Act and the arrest of uh, some people by military tribunals was illegal.
And we have the names of the justices on the screen, but uh, one of the books I have describes it as a rather undistinguished court. Would you agree with that assessment? I would not agree with that. I, I think uh, when you read the papers of these gentlemen, there's a few uh, uh, blowhards. Noah Swain is a blowhard reading his no, paper. No relation we have to establish. Yeah, yes, <laughs> is, is, is a sleepy experience. But with Miller and Field and Bradley, uh, you're dealing with justices of great intellect. I don't always agree with them. Uh, but these are, are serious uh, uh, individuals. Harold is watching us in Omaha. You're on the air, Harold. Go ahead, please. Thank you. I don't mean to uh, denigrate the importance of the uh, of the case, but uh, wasn't it a, weren't there also other cities across the country that had the awful problem and time took care of them in omaha nebraska we had awful from slaughterhouses flowing into the united states as recently as 1940 but the time addressed that thank you very much uh I, I don't know the story about the time addressing these problems, uh, but I do know uh, that what they were doing in New Orleans was modeled on what other cities had done, most notably New York, many cities in Europe, of having a centralized slaughterhouse. Now, some of these were municipal and not uh, put together by uh, private investment. But New Orleans didn't have any money during Reconstruction. And having private investors build a needed slaughterhouse and giving them a 25-year franchise to charge rents in that slaughterhouse was not unreasonable given the economic situation at the time. But they were modeling it on that. But I don't know what happened if you just had a laissez-faire approach where eventually something gives. Uh, I think with, with many people dying from cholera and yellow fever, not that the slaughterhouses were the causes of either of those, but they didn't know that, uh, it, it was time to act. Well, and I think the, the, you know, the, the, the point I would make is if you just look at this as being a case about the slaughterhouses and the legislative efforts to deal with them, then you might not think that this is that big a deal. But on the other hand, I think with a number of the cases that will be discussed in this series, I mean, you know, you could look at the Miranda case as just being about a criminal arrest, and there are criminal arrests that happen every day. But what makes these cases so significant is that they go all the way to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court in the case addresses something that really has profound and lasting significance. And one of the things that I wanted to just share is that this is not lost on the justices that are deciding this case. So this is not a case that strikes them as a sleeper or just another case about how you deal with awful or some other sanitation problem. And so Justice Miller, in his own opinion, uh, uh, says this, quote, no questions so far reaching and pervading in their consequences, so profoundly interesting to the people of this country and so important on their bearing upon the relations of the United States and of the several states to each other and to the citizens of the states and of the United States have been before this court during the official life of any of its presence, present members. So he's essentially starting out by saying, this is the single most important case any of us have heard, any of us have decided. Mary Ann is watching in Corpus Christi, Texas. Hi, Mary Ann. Hello, how are you doing? Great. Your question for us? Uh, my question is directed to Professor Roth. 
who is attributed to the well-educated African Creole community and uh, also to the education of Oscar Dunn and uh, Pinchback? Yeah, what, what had happened in New Orleans is uh, there weren't, there were a few public schools in New Orleans before the Civil War, but the Afro-Creoles didn't go there. They were educated by the, uh, by Catholic private schools. Some even sent their children to schools in the North and in Paris. Uh, but it was all done with a, from a Francophone uh, perspective. And I, I just wanted to get one other point in for, to the sure. caller two times ago, that uh, in Omaha, perhaps, things get solved over time because it's an efficient place. In New Orleans, if somebody with power doesn't act, nothing gets done. No offense to New Orleans. I lived there 10 years. I love you. I got your back. But it's, it's, if a legislature didn't act, there would still be uh, uh, butchers putting offal in the river by the water intake pipes. Tim is watching in Greenview, Illinois, and you're up next, Tim. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, my question is... Uh, didn't the North uh, have uh, enough? Uh, uh, didn't didn't have enough, Didn't they have enough uh, butchers? Or uh, what was the reason for the butchers uh, from the North to go down to uh, Arkansas? Oh, well, to Louisiana. Louisiana. Money to be made, yes. Yeah, they, these were not not everyone involved with the Crescent City Slaughterhouse was a Northerner. Some were. Uh, Paul, did you want to? Sorry, I was. Well, no, no. I, and I would just, what what they were uh, the the folks from the north were uh, investors. They were people with capital. There wasn't any capital in the south after the Civil War. The banks were destroyed. The economy was in ruins. And in order to get anything built, you needed to bring in northern capital. When they go to rebuild the railroads, they bring in Henry McComb, a capitalist from Delaware, who who promises to reconstruct all the railroads. But you needed outside money. Uh, the uh, ex-Confederates, of course, will portray this, and this will get lodged in the American memory, that these are all scoundrels down there to get elected on the votes of ignorant uh, former slaves and then use their position uh, to rip off the South for their own benefit. And when you read the letters of carpetbaggers, uh, many of them had an evangelical sense that they were doing God's work and they were coming down to show the South how it's done, to take what they saw as a backward place stunted by slavery and uh, fill it with factories and public schools and railroads and recreate the South and the North's image. It's a classic Reconstruction story. The United States has tried to do that in many places around the globe. And for doing that, uh, they are called carpetbaggers and, and seen as scoundrels. And there's a couple of scoundrels in the group. There's a, this is the Gilded Age, of course, and corruption is everywhere. Uh, but there's many of them that really think they're doing something uh, important and, and resent the, the notions that they're just there to get rich. Our next question, as we talk about the slaughterhouse cases and the Supreme Court, one of our landmark series, Joseph in LaPointe, Wisconsin, you're on the air. Uh, what happened to Judge Campbell? Oh, well, you're getting ahead of our story. We'll tell you, in, if you continue watching, what happened to Judge Campbell. Thank you for the question. Uh, let me actually introduce Judge Campbell's nemesis, and that's Samuel Miller, who is uh, serving on the Supreme Court. And he is one of the most distinguished members of the court, as we've established. He also is important to this because he was assigned to write the majority opinion in the case. We're going to learn more about his background in our next piece of video. Samuel Miller moved here about 1850, and he built this house for about $13,000 as a wedding present for his wife. 
Samuel Miller left Kentucky because he did not believe in slavery. Kentucky was a slave state and Iowa was not. In the Keokuk Public Library files, we have an article that references when Mr. Miller was a young man, his family owned slaves and his friend was a slave and his father actually beat the young child and Mr. Miller did not like that. So he came here with his family and he freed his slaves. He actually had some of them working here for him in which he paid them. And the Lee County Historical Society believes this would have been the dining room where Samuel Freeman Miller would have entertained many guests, political guests, lawyers, other judges. Miller took a great interest in state politics. His views helped shape the Republican Party. Here is a copy of an article from the Keokuk Daily Gate City newspaper stating that he went to the Republican State Convention. They were electing officers and he was representing the first district. Samuel Miller had a very successful law firm here. He attracted national attention. And after 12 years of living here in Keokuk, he was appointed U.S. Supreme Court Justice by Abraham Lincoln. He was also the very first appointed justice this side of the Mississippi River. Mike Ross, what's important to know about his background and, how, and the temperament that he brought to the court? Again, this is a, a man who married into a slave-owning family, owned slaves, in Kentucky becomes, uh, he, he was briefly a doctor and wrote his medical school dissertation on cholera and its treatment. The treatments were barbaric, but he was one of the first to recognize that it had a water, it had a connection with waterborne uh, because the cholera had affected the Cumberland River. But he hates being a doctor because all his patients die. And he uh, moves, uh, and then uh, in Kentucky, he follows Cassius Clay, the emancipationist leader. And when Kentucky, in its 1849 constitution, saddles slavery ever more firmly on the state, he says it's time to get out. And he moves to Keokuk, Iowa, a city he thinks is going to be the next Chicago. Everybody there does. And becomes one of the founders of the Republican Party. And throughout his career is going to be a moderate Republican, not a radical Republican. That's going to affect the slaughterhouse uh, decision, but a staunch supporter of Lincoln and eventually a staunch supporter of Reconstruction. Uh, and again, he's someone that doesn't like lawyers um, puffing up a case with lots of ancient precedents. And Campbell's argument in Slaughterhouse is exactly the kind of thing Miller doesn't like going back to the battles between Parliament and the King. And he says, we all know why these amendments were passed. We know why the 14th Amendment was passed. It was to protect the freedmen. And it was not to protect white butchers in New Orleans from a needed health regulation. And that kind of what he thinks is a, he's the first justice from west of the Mississippi, that kind of what we today would call practical Midwestern thinking, he prides himself on. And that's part of really at the heart of the case is his dismissing all what he sees as puffery. Paul Clement, can you tell us about the state of the Supreme Court and when this case was heard? Where did they meet, for example? Well, they met in the, uh, you know, in the, in, in the old Supreme Court chamber in the Senate. So this is long before they have their own marble palace across the street. So the circumstances of this are a lot more modest than that. Um, the, uh, but at this point, you know, Supreme Court arguments are often very well attended. Uh, these are also multi-day affairs. So in this day and age, typically the most important Supreme Court argument is still going to get 30 minutes aside. And when the slaughterhouse cases are argued for the second time, uh, it's a three-day affair. So it, you know, February 3rd, 4th, and 5th. 
1873. So this is something where the justices allowed the lawyers uh, a lot of airtime, as lawyers might refer to it today, to make their cases. And, you know, Campbell not only is relying on the 13th and the 14th Amendment in this sort of audacious way, but he is drawing the court back to long-established British precedents. And one of the things, I think for a modern lawyer, it's a little hard to sort of understand why this complaint about the butchers losing their ability to practice their trade and uh, this this company being given a monopoly is even sort of a, 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 a sort of a plausible claim. But Campbell, to give him credit, does go back to these British common law cases. Uh, and there's a famous British case that involved uh, the Crown giving somebody in Britain, uh, I think it was a Darcy, it's you know, right out of a Jane Austen novel, but Darcy is given a monopoly over the distribution of playing cards in the entirety of England. Uh, he's the only person who can do this. Uh, and there's a, a celebrated legal case that says, no, that is a monopoly that is unlawful and in derogation of the common law. So essentially the argument Campbell's crafting, and he's running right into Miller's prejudices because he is relying on these old cases, uh, but he's making the argument that the common law made clear that you couldn't have these kind of monopolies and the privileges or immunities clause of the Constitution. It must incorporate the idea that I have a privilege to practice my trade, and the government can't give that privilege exclusively to someone else, just like with uh, Darcy and the playing cards. So the uh, questions before the court, the legal questions, and we, again, we have to explain that the great irony of this uh, is that this amendment to the Constitution was one of three written to address the civil rights of black citizens in the United States after Dred Scott and after the Civil War. Uh, but it was a case with white butchers that came to the Supreme, Supreme Court that was the first challenge of the 14th Amendment. And here are the questions before the court in this case. First of all, does the Louisiana court uh, law, rather, create an involuntary servitude? Does it deny equal protection of the law? You see, that refers back to the 14th Amendment language. Does it deprive individuals of their property without due process? of law. Again, the language of the 14th Amendment. And finally, does the law violate the 14th Amendment's privileges and immunities clause? Those are the questions the court was asked to consider. Now, we heard that John Campbell argued the case on behalf of the butchers, and this is the slaughterhouse cases because they were a number of them all consolidated into one. Who was arguing on the other side? Well, one of the lead attorneys on the other side is an interesting guy named Thomas Durant, who was uh, uh, once a slave owner, but then he becomes influenced by utopian socialism. He's a Fourierist, and they have all kinds of exotic views. You can Google it. Uh, and uh, what had happened is in, he was in New Orleans and had become kind of a, a radical Republican in favor of black rights. But he is there at the time of the 1866 New Orleans riot, which is a moment where leaders of the Afro-Creole community and their white allies are surrounded by the New Orleans police force before Reconstruction. Uh, which is made up of uh, the men of Henry Hayes' brigade who had fought at Gettysburg under Lee, and they break into the hall and start killing everyone in sight. And Durant flees and then has death threats for his life, moves to D.C. and becomes a lawyer who argues in front of the Supreme Court. And he's one of the key uh, lawyers arguing on behalf of... The state of Louisiana, of right? Uh, uh, well, well it, it, it's on behalf of the Crescent City uh, uh, 
livestock company. Okay, and there was also lawyers, because there were two defendants in the case, State of Louisiana and also the Crescent City Livestock. There were two lawyers, Jeremiah Black and Matthew Carpenter. Them. Matthew Carpenter's uh, knee-deep in the ratification debates uh, in, co- in uh, Congress of, uh, uh, the, uh, of the 14th Amendment, and he's someone who knows the meaning of the 14th Amendment. He, if you wanted someone who knows the original intent, Carpenter would have been there as the sausage was being made. Next call, Richard, Locust Grove, Virginia. You're on for our two guests as we talk about the slaughterhouse cases. Uh, yes. Uh, my question is for either one of the scholars or both of the scholars. And my question is, um, is the Klan involved in any way uh, during this case? Uh, the, well, it wouldn't be the, in Louisiana, it wouldn't be the Ku Klux Klan. It would be the Knights of the White Camellia. And in the city of New Orleans, a little bit later, the Crescent City White League. But there's lots of, uh, and a, a, a paramilitary group known as the Louisiana Legion. And the way they are involved in this case is that this is a full-front assault on Reconstruction, lodged by the Democratic Party politically, lodged by the Knights of the White Camellia and other states of the Klan with violence, where they're killing Republican officials, they're killing white people to cooperate with the Republican Party, and they're killing the freedmen and their political leaders. But then there is Campbell, who doesn't pick up a gun, but picks up his legal briefs, and it's Campbell and a number of other uh, uh, lawyers, and they go to court. And combined, it is a full-blown, ruler-ruined, massive resistance uh, to Reconstruction. So you said that the case had to be argued twice. Why is that? How does that happen? Well, the the first time it's argued that one of the, the justices is effectively sort of indisposed, and so you have... You know, there's nine justices, but one of them's unavailable, and so the court is not in a position to decide this case. And I think they understand, as I, as I read before, you know, they all had this understanding that this was a momentous decision. I mean, you only have one chance to have the first chance to interpret the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. So they need to get a full court in order to decide this case. So they slate it for re-argument and have this remarkable argument. And just to underscore what you said, I mean, if you think about the four issues that are before the court, it's really the heart of the Reconstruction Amendments. You have the 13th Amendment, and then you have the three principal provisions in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. You have the Due Process Clause, you have the Equal Protection Clause, and you have the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And I think, in certainly to lawyers and present-day lawyers, you think of the Slaughterhouse case as the great cases about the Privileges or Immunities Clause and because of the way they decided it, sort of the last case, functionally, <laughs> about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. But Campbell had it all on the table. He didn't leave anything to chance. And he had the Due Process Clause, and he had the Equal Protection Clause also available. And it's one of the interesting sort of products of history that Justice Miller and his decision really focuses on the Privileges or Immunities Clause, sort of says that the other two haven't been sort of too terribly, hardly pressed uh, before the court and says very little about those clauses. And, you know, part of the legacy of the Slaughterhouse case is it's not just important for what it decided about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. It's almost more important for the sort of impetus that it gave for subsequent litigants and subsequent justices to breathe even greater life into the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause than the framers of the 14th Amendment may have intended. 
David in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. What's your question for us? If equal protection is based in large part on a classification of people, be it race or something else, is the only argument the butchers were making is that their classification is based on being butchers? Well, I think their equal protection argument was principally based on the fact that the opportunity to be a butcher should have been open to all. And so it was a classification in a sense. There were certain people who were in, certain people who were out. And I think in that sense, it is a classic non-suspect class, what current lawyers would call a classic non-suspect class equal protection clause argument. Uh, And then that was coupled with a due process argument that was really, again, what current lawyers would call a substantive due process argument. They weren't arguing that somehow you could have this uh, exclusive monopoly for butchers across the river if only you gave better notice and an additional hearing. They were basically saying that this was not the kind of statute that the state could pass at all, that it violated sort of a kind of broader concept of due process, something that I think, you know, viewers should stay tuned for in the Lochner case when that's discussed, because that becomes something that's adopted uh, by a majority of the court for a period of the court's history. So all of these arguments are made, but as I say, I think ultimately Campbell focuses and certainly Justice Miller focuses on the privileges or immunities clause. You had something you wanted to add? No, I was just thinking about his e- the equal protection claim. Uh, and I always thought that perhaps the butchers were also arguing uh, that they weren't being allowed to use their property as other people were because they had been slaughtering on property in uptown New Orleans. And suddenly they've got to go slaughter somewhere else. Would that fit the model you... Uh, you know, I, I think that would that would certainly be consistent with the model, but I think the critical thing, and this really feeds into Justice Miller's understanding of the Equal Protection Clause at the time that he's writing the slaughterhouse cases, the one thing they weren't arguing was that this law operated anything like the Black Codes. Right. It wasn't like that only African Americans and not whites could get involved in this monopoly butcher trade across the river. And it certainly wasn't something where this was being uh, secured only to whites. And I think, you know, Justice Miller, and this is not entirely consistent with the way the Supreme Court subsequently interprets the uh, Equal Protection Clause, but I think he has in mind very much the purposes behind the Equal Protection Clause and the fact that it was designed not just to make everybody equal in every classification, but to suggest that you couldn't have things like the, like the black code. And he says that's the one pervading purpose right. of the Equal Protection Clause. Next is a call from Chuck in Renton, Washington. Hi, Chuck. Hello. My question is, uh, is kind of a factor that has been brought up obliquely in the issue around the carpetbaggers. Uh, during that period in American history, the uh, False Civil Claims Act, I believe, Title 18 or 28 of the U.S. Code, came to pass, the scoundrels weren't just Southerners that that preyed upon uh, the South in the Reconstruction period and did a lot of fraudulent things. Did that play into the dilemma that uh, was faced in in cultural terms and also in terms of the law down there? And did any of it come before the U.S. Supreme Court in that time? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, I I mean, certainly I think that to the extent the question is alluding to the fact that, you know, you had not just the... The, the idea of the carpetbaggers coming down there, but there were also efforts at the same time to project federal power to protect uh, everyone, but particularly uh, the recently freed slaves from 
uh, being subjected to violence by others down in the South. I mean, that is a part of this period of constitutional history. Uh, there's the Crookshank case that hopefully we'll get a chance to mention, at least in passing, that was involved in an application of one of those civil rights statutes uh, to a situation also coming out of Louisiana. And so those, those cases also uh, came to, to, to the Supreme Court at the same time. And if you want to put a slightly broader kind of historical context here, what the Supreme Court is wrestling with during this period is not just this particular case and what to do with the Reconstruction Amendment. I think they're also dealing with the reality that during the Civil War, there was an opportunity to extend federal power in ways that the Union had never seen before. And I think that Reconstruction was an effort to use, in the absence of a war, a similarly broad scope of the federal power against the states. And what you start to see in this period is a reaction by the court that the pendulum has to swing back to the states. And there can't be quite this aggressive assertion of federal power. And if I could just give you one uh, statistic that really brings this home. In the entire period of our constitutional history between the beginning of the Constitution in 1789 and 1869, there were a total of four acts of Congress that were struck down as unconstitutional. Yet between 1870 and 1875, there are six acts of Congress that are struck down as unconstitutional. So this slaughterhouse case, the Crookshank case, all of these can be understood as part of the Supreme Court sort of saying the pendulum really has to be uh, swinging back and we can't have quite this aggressive assertion of federal power. Certainly critics are saying that the Supreme Court just lost their nerve. Uh, but I think that you know, both sides, in a sense, uh, can, can point to just the facts of what the court was confronting and how they resolved those cases and support their argument. And to tie all our cases together, if Marbury Madison hadn't been decided the way it was, the court wouldn't be reviewing and declaring law, the acts of Congress unconstitutional? Well, and I think it's great that you brought Marbury up because I think you know, there are aspects of the Slaughterhouse case that are a little like Marbury and that I think a lot of people understand the genius of the Marbury decision is that... Uh, Chief Justice Marshall wrote a very important decision. If you come out the other way, uh, it's not entirely clear that the decision would have even been enforced, and he really would have picked a very major fight. And there's a similar sense here with the slaughterhouse cases. If Justice Miller flips his vote, and there's five votes the other way, and they start saying that all sorts of common law privileges are enforced by the 14th Amendment uh, against the states, then that sets up the the federal Supreme Court as reviewing all sorts of state laws without really any text in the Constitution to strike them down. And I think, you know, no one will know what would have happened if the court decides the slaughterhouse case the other way. But it would have been a very aggressive assertion of judicial authority, to be sure. And uh, Miller says that. He says this will make the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary, the perpetual censor of the legislation of the states. And chomping at the bit for that to happen is Stephen J. Field. He loves that idea. He loves the idea of a court that can use natural law principles uh, to overturn, uh, in particular, regulatory legislation. Uh, and you read it in his dissent. And a lot of this is what frightens Miller. And he's just like, 
now we see what's coming here, and it's coming from Campbell. We know he's up to something nefarious, and then they see Fields' descent, and they're like, this is a Pandora's box that we are not going to open. And it should be pointed out, Stephen Field of Justice was another Lincoln appointee. Another Lincoln appointee, but a Democrat who's opposed to Reconstruction and is angling for the Democratic presidential nomination, uh, but also someone who has really, throughout his jurisprudence, is often a natural law uh, an advocate of using natural law principles. Greg is in Marysville, Washington. Hi, Greg. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much. This is a very interesting program. So I was wondering, um, you had Justice Breyer on recently talking about the U.S. Supreme Court um, looking at foreign rulings, and uh, since Louisiana follows the Napoleonic Code, I was wondering if that was at all implicated in this decision, and how do federal courts in general, deal with uh, the Napoleonic Code versus uh, mostly uh, British common law, I think, is our roots. Thank you very much. Thank you. Can you interpret that for the rest of us who aren't uh, lawyers? Sure. Um, one, of the, you know, one of the great things about having Louisiana in the Union is not only that it gives us a chance to go to New Orleans without a passport, but it also <laughs> means that we have one of the 50 states that is really operating under a different rule of law as its just base rule of law than the other 49 states. Because the other 49 states in the Union are really based on the common law. And there are two great traditions in the law. There's the common law that you trace to England, and then there are the civil code-based law that are the norm in most of continental Europe, and they trace themselves to France and the Napoleonic Codes. And wouldn't you know it, Louisiana is actually a code state and traces its legal tradition back to a completely different tradition. Now, that may have made a difference when these cases were being litigated in the Louisiana state courts, but by the time they get to the Supreme Court, that's really not going to come into play. And what really comes into play, if you look at the majority opinion and the dissenting opinion, is something that continues to be one of the major themes of judicial review today, which is how much do you look into what the framers of the 14th Amendment were trying to do and what was their intent, and how much do you look at the plain language of what they passed? And that's really the debate here, because what Campbell and his argument and the dissenters are saying is, look, these, these words, due process, equal protection, privileges or immunities, they don't say anything about recently freed slaves they seem like they're generally applicable to all, and they seem to empower us to do that, do this. Miller, on the other hand, is looking at all of this, and he's saying, look, this is an ancient history. These Reconstruction Amendments were passed five years ago. I was around then. I know what these were about, and I know these were about protecting African Americans. They weren't about protecting white butchers in New Orleans. So we heard it was a 5-4 decision with Justice Miller writing the opinion. Here's just a little bit we've heard from Paul Clement, uh, but here's a paragraph we picked out from his, uh, his majority opinion. It is quite clear then that there is a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state which are distinct from each other and which depend upon different characteristics or circumstances in the individual. But we have only 15 minutes left, and we need to get on to the next part of our story. So let me ask you, uh, what happened uh, to the butchers who lost the case? What was their history after this? Well, uh, even uh, the, the, the unanimity amongst butchers is breaking down during the case, because at one point, 
the Butcher's Benevolent Association uh, cuts a deal with the Crescent City Livestock where they, they kind of merge and they move to a new slaughterhouse that they're building uh, down below the city. And some other butchers are like, wait, wait, hey, we didn't agree to move from slaughtering in one monopoly to another, and they keep the lawsuit up. That's why it's r reaching the Supreme Court. After the, after the case, the battles over slaughterhouses and where the slaughtering should be go on and on, even after Reconstruction collapses and we're back into a legislature controlled uh, largely by white Democrats. Uh, the, the slaughterhouse situation continues to be a deeply uh, contested one. Robert in Springfield, New Jersey, you're on. Yes, my two. I have two questions. The first one concerns with how, when the Fourteenth Amendment was originally written, uh, the privileges or immunities clause was seen as protecting substantive rights while the Equal Protection Clause was seen as protecting procedural rights. So the question has to do with why was the Equal Protection Clause as, seen, as being seen just for procedural rights? And my second question has to do with how the Supreme Court, since the slaughterhouse cases, has ruled in, in protecting rights under the Privileges and Immunities Clause twice, and only in 1999 has that one remained on the books. So my question, so my second question is, can our two guests here uh, perceive any legal issues in the future that could be guaranteed under the privileges or immunities clause? That's a semester's worth of answers, and I'm yeah. going to let I'm going to let Paul handle this. Well, so the I guess there's a couple of points to be made about this. One is I think that the privileges or immunities clause was principally designed to protect some substantive rights, as you say. I think the Due Process Clause, certainly if it was going to be con interpreted consistently with the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, probably was envisioned as protecting procedural rights. And then the Equal Protection Clause was clearly envisioned in avoiding classifications and differential treatment, exactly which differential treatment is something we're still fighting about today. But I think that what Justice Miller does, and it really is you know, very close to the, the passage that was just read, is that he says, you're misunderstanding this, Campbell and dissenters. This is not about privileges or immunities. Broadly understood, all of the various privileges and immunities that might have existed at common law, if you want to be protected against those or if you want those protected, you have to look to your state governments. The only thing that the privileges or immunities clause protects are privileges that are uniquely privileges of U.S. citizenship, national citizenship. And Miller does his best. He actually feels like, you know, he knows what he's doing. And he knows <laughs> that he's just interpreted the privileges or immunities clause down to nearly nothingness. So he actually has a passage of his opinion where he sort of is a little bit shamed about this and says, well, there are these things. Where there are some, you know, privileges and immunities of national citizenship. But they typically are things that were probably already protected by provisions of the Bills or Bill of Rights. Like, he, you know, you have the national privilege to go into Congress and to have your grievances heard. But that's kind of what the right to petition clause already says. And so it's really difficult to identify things that he has uh, preserved. And that's why I think most legal scholars, when they look at this decision, and this is something the dissenters were saying contemporaneously is you've just, you've just read the Privileges or Immunities Clause 
out of the Constitution of the United States. So since this uh, Miller decision or the Miller, uh, um, uh, sorry, I've lost the word, but Miller's argument essentially silenced the 14th Amendment uh, and the Privileged Immunities Clause of it. There are signs today that the high court may be ready to reinvigorate the clause. Here is a clip of retired Justice John Paul Stevens on the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause and his Sands v. Roe decision for the court. We're going to listen and uh, then wrap up our discussion here. The right of newly arrived citizens to the same privileges and immunities enjoyed by other citizens is plainly identified in the 14th Amendment's Privilege and Immunities Clause, the Privilege or Immunities Clause. Of greater importance, the 14th Amendment's Citizenship Clause expressly equates citizenship with residence and does not tolerate a hierarchy of subclasses of similarly situated citizens based on the location of their prior residence. That Congress passed a statute approving durational residency requirements does not alter our analysis. This Court has consistently held that Congress may not authorize the states to violate the 14th Amendment. Citizens of the United States, whether rich or poor, have the right to choose to be citizens of the state wherein they reside. And that was uh, John Paul Stevens on the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause. When we talk about the legal legacy of this decision, the slaughterhouse cases, there are a number of major cases in which it was cited. Here are some of them. U.S. v. Cruikshank, which we heard uh, referred to by our guest in 1879. Plessy v. Ferguson, civil rights case in 1896. Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. Uh, Loving versus Virginia, a civil rights case in 1967, and a case that uh, Paul Clement knows well, McDonald v. Chicago, argued in 2010, and he argued that case before the course court. So what should we know about the legacy, the long tail of this? You want to start, uh, Michael Ross, about its importance and where the debate is about its importance? Uh, well, I think Paul is actually perfectly situated to answer that question because in McDonald, there were people advocating that Slaughterhouse be overturned, and the court had an opportunity to do that and didn't. Yeah, no, and I'm happy to kick it off and then turn it over to you because I think that's, that's an impressive list, but in some ways it's the dog that didn't bark because many scholars really believe that it's the Privileges or Immunities Clause that was designed by the framers of that provision to incorporate all of the Bill of Rights directly against state governments. So your First Amendment right to free speech, which the Supreme Court didn't get around to protecting against state government action until decades and decades later, that was designed to be extended to state governments by the Privileges or Immunities Clause. That's the argument that many, many people have made. And so instead of having a citation of only a handful of cases, if the court had gone that route, there would be literally hundreds of cases uh, and 20, 30 cases every year where the court would be applying the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment and not what ultimately happened, which is those same provisions were incorporated against the states, but they were done through the due process clause, which I think a lot of historians and a lot of legal scholars say really isn't faithful to the original interpretation of the Constitution. And just to give you one illustration of why that might make a difference is one of the things that's different about the Privileges or Immunities Clause from the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause is the Privileges or Immunities Clause gives its protection to citizens. The Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause protect people. 
Now, since the First Amendment has been incorporated against state governments, then the people that are protected by that has long been interpreted in a lot of context to include corporations. Citizens, on the other hand, was interpreted by the Supreme Court a long time ago not to include corporations. And so these distinctions that you know, legal scholars debate to a fairly well could actually have real-world consequences as to whether the First Amendment to the Constitution applies not just to individual speech, but applies to corporate speech when it's being regulated by the states. And I think we would be remiss in our closing minutes that I would get lots of email tomorrow if we didn't mention that there is some evidence that some of the radical Republicans who helped frame the 14th Amendment said some things that suggest that they meant for the Privileges or Immunities Clause to include the Bill of Rights, people like Jacob Howard. At the same time, there's lots of evidence out there as well that not everyone who voted for the 14th Amendment or the people that vote for it, the ratification in the states wanted it to be like that. And had the framers wanted that to be uh, the case, they could have just changed the wording of the 14th Amendment and said the first eight amendments uh, of the Constitution that apply to the central government now apply to the states, and it would be solved. But instead, some of them say things about the um, amendment, amendments being protected, but some don't. And law reviews, thousands and thousands of pages of people parsing what the framers of the 14th Amendment intended have now been written. Well, there'd be a lot fewer law professors, I think, had they read the amendment more clearly. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that everyone out there watching who, who's written articles on this topic knows that we take that debate very seriously. Roger in Decatur, Georgia, quick question from you. Sure. So I read Mr. Ross's book, and Justice Miller was a pretty mediocre character. Uh, he himself said he was appointed to be a reliable Republican, and that he was. And we've had justices that were appointed who were not really legal geniuses like Sherman Minton and Charles Whitaker. You know, are we making a mistake in judging the Supreme Court justices of today as if they were all legal geniuses with finally raw jurisprudences? Or should we really to take a look at them as, as maybe just a lot of the result of a political process? I'm going to let Paul answer that, but I disagree on Justice Miller. I think he was a, a very intelligent, but in, definitely a political justice. Well, and, 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 and let me answer the, the question this way, which is there's a lot that can be said about the slaughterhouse cases, and I hope we've conveyed some sense of really how important these cases are jurisprudentially, because with the 14th Amendment, you really have a fundamental shift where the Constitution's now protecting individuals against state governments and not just the federal governments. It takes a while because of the slaughterhouse case to get the full promise of the 14th Amendment, but it really is a central, central case to interpreting that amendment. A lot can be said about the decision pro or con. The one thing that couldn't be said about the decision, at least at the time, was that it was just a product of politics because it was a 5-4 decision, but you actually had three Republican appointees on both sides. And so I think that actually cautions against interpreting Supreme Court justices old and new as just sort of political actors or people who were appointed for a particular purpose and are not distinguished scholars. I mean, you know, I, I make my living arguing in front of the justices, and I really feel like certainly the current group of justices 
are real scholars and are really looking uh, to decide the legal issues in the cases. And I think that's borne out in the slaughterhouse cases as well. I mean, I'll let the professor give a full rebuttal to uh, defend Justice Miller. But it is a, it is a scholarly and well-written opinion. It has been criticized bitterly uh, by, by scholars. But I also think that it's a decision that really applied the traditional tools of at least looking at the intent behind the legislature, which is a debate we're still having to this very day. On Justice Miller, you tell us in your book that he had aspirations unfulfilled for chief justice and in 1884 was even hopeful for the presidency. And you write that he's long been considered uh, by historians as one of the key figures in the unraveling of Reconstruction. Does he deserve that legacy? He doesn't deserve it. He didn't intend it. Uh, but because the, uh, for, because the slaughterhouse cases does not apply the Bill of Rights against the states, when Reconstruction collapses and white supremacy is restored, uh, African Americans could have turned to the Privileges or Immunities Clause and their Bill of Rights rights to fight Jim Crow legislation. And when you look for where that doesn't happen, it's the slaughterhouse cases. But if you're reading Miller's letters or you read the opinion itself, which is full of ringing language of the need to protect African-American rights, you know that that is not what was intended. And uh, we had a caller that had asked us whatever happened to John Campbell, what happened to him? Uh, John Campbell suffers a serious accident in New Orleans that makes it very hard for him to travel, but he wants to continue arguing before the court, so he moves to Baltimore. And there continues his uh, legal practice, and uh, after arguing a, a few more cases in front of the court that are anti-Reconstruction, um, he passes. We have a, a caller that on Twitter that our viewer on Twitter that asks us, please tell us again where to purchase the book for landmark cases. I'm looking but can't find it. We have a, a small book that uh, is uh, we're selling it at cost eight ninety five. That's available on our website. If you go to cspan.org/landmarkcases, we'll get it out to you very quickly. Written by Tony Morrow, who's been covering the court for. Um, about 30 years now, and uh, he did a summary of each of the 12 cases, and it will help if you're going to follow along with us to learn more about the background as we proceed throughout our series. Gentlemen, we are just about out of time. Um, as we close here, just in quick summary, why should someone care about the landmark case, or this landmark case as being one of them, the slaughterhouse cases? For the same reason they should care about Reconstruction, one of the most, uh, one of the areas that Americans have a blank spot in their historical memory, but the area that really defines the meaning of the Civil War. And the slaughterhouse cases were in part about defining the meaning of the Civil War. And you would say, Paul Clement? I would say that I counted six of the cases that are left in the series that are major constitutional cases that involve not action by the federal government, but by action by the state governments. The reason those are constitutional questions. The reason that when the state government does something to you that you don't like, you can take it all the way to the United, Supreme, United States Supreme Court is the 14th Amendment. And it's the very fact that Cruikshank is the very first case to interpret that amendment that makes it such a landmark case. Thanks to both of you for adding your scholarship and experience to our discussion tonight. And thanks to our viewers for being involved in C-SPAN's landmark series case. We'll see you next week.
Our original series Landmark Cases continues next Monday with a look at 1905's Lochner v. New York. In a 5-4 decision, the court ruled that a New York labor law interfered with the 14th Amendment right of businesses and employees to enter into contracts by limiting the number of hours a bakery worker can be required to work. The justices declared that the law was not justified as a legitimate exercise of police powers to protect health and safety. That's live next Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN. You can learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series, which explores the human stories and constitutional dramas behind some of the Supreme Court's most significant decisions by going to cspan.org slash landmark cases. And from the website, you can find C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping. More live